In a world where we all know big business has a focus on maximizing profit, my guest today makes one quilt at a time from clothing, upcycled items, and more with the goal of repurposed zero-waste quilts. Today, I'll have a chat with Zach Foster. Hello and welcome to the Quilter on Fire podcast, where I explore the stories, the connections, and the joy of guests in the quilting world. I'm your host, Brandy Maslowski, the Quilter on Fire, and I can't wait to share this week's episode with you. My guest today is Zach Foster. He is a quilt maker who loves working with repurposed materials like old clothes, worn out linens, leftover shirting materials, and thrown out umbrellas even, and vintage tablecloths. He makes custom quilts and engages in some really cool ways with his quilting community online. He's doing all kinds of fun stuff with friends and mentors, and I can't wait to get into this. It's going to be a conversation about using what you can use up to do what you love and so much more. So let's get into it. Zach Foster, welcome to the show. Brandy, thank you so much for having me. I just, it's, it's always such a kindness to receive an invitation like this and uh, have a chance to share my stories and my thoughts. Wow. So well, I'm you. so excited. This is going to be a really good conversation. Now, I love to start by taking a little look back at where you got started. So when do you first remember putting stitch to fabric? Oh, I can tell you very easily. That would have been the third grade. It was Laura Ingalls Wilder Day. A little bit of a complicated topic now in hindsight, but when I was in the third grade in 1986, perhaps seven, I don't know. We were doing all this little house on the prairie stuff. So we had a spelling bee, we had a hopscotch, and one of the stations that we did was a quilting station. And so I remember Miss Ledford, our teacher, walking us through how to make a simple four patch. And I, I still remember the fabrics. They were dark calicos. It was a black calico and then a purple and a blue one. And I was so proud of those four little squares that I took them home and on my own turned them into a little pillow. And if Aww. I could find that pillow today, I'm sure it's out in the attic somewhere. I would just, I would treasure it. I would just hug it and never let it go. Oh, that's such a sweet beginning. So, you know, that teacher sounds like she might've been an influence, but were there certain people in your life that had a, a creative impact on you early on? Yeah. You know, when I think of early life, when I think of mm, early creative inspirations, I think of my mom and her mom, both. So my mom, practice a lot of calligraphy when I was a kid. And so I can still picture her, my mind's eye, sitting at the kitchen table with one of those, how do you call them? Those those folding tabletops that kind of allow you to elevate just a little bit, right? And she would practice her strokes over and over and over. And it gave me the sense that to be graceful takes work uh, and it takes yeah. a lot of practice. So yeah. that was a lesson that my mom taught me through her calligraphy. And then her mom, I would say my earliest textile memory was over at my grandma's house. And I was just tall enough to see up over the ironing board, right? And I could see that she was working on making a garment. I imagine a dress. The fabric was blue, almost in my mind's eye, it was kind of like a blue bark cloth, but who knows what it actually was. But what I remember most distinctly are the, the pieces of pattern paper that she had, that kind of brown onion skin color pattern paper. And I remember the materiality of that and being struck at that really young age that like, 
my grandma can do some really cool things. She makes her own clothes, right? I grew up, we got everything off the rack, right? But here's somebody making their own clothes. And I just thought that was just so sweet. So when when I think of early inspiration, mom and grandma, for sure. Yeah, that's and and there's a few things that really stick out in this conversation right now because you see all of this stuff online about the piles and piles of clothing and waste that's happening in the world today. And then you think about your grandmother making her own clothes, like it's just a real juxtaposition. And then also your mother giving you that lesson so early on that it takes time to get those strokes right. Uh, That's so important nowadays, because even when I'm teaching or anyone is teaching for that matter, there are students in the class that are just feeling like they have to be a master immediately. And when you can just sit them back and say, listen, this is going to be fun today. We're going to do this practice today and we're just going to take our time to get better. That's such an important message. What a great way to start off the podcast. I think that's especially true for adult learners. We are so used to being good at everything because at this point in our lives, we have the autonomy to spend our time basically how we want to. And we choose to spend it usually at the things we're good at. We don't (laughs) voluntarily put ourselves in situations where we're not going to be good at something. Kids do this all the time because that's just the world for kids. But as an adult, it can be tough not to be good at something right away. And it does take practice. Oh, absolutely. And I think I heard a story recently online where a child heard an adult say, I'm learning to draw. And the child was like, they forgot how? We We do forget how, but we can recover it. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. We have that creativity inside. We just have to practice, like you said earlier. Okay, so I want to get right into your very first quilt that you made. So tell us the story about that. Well, I like to say that I made my first quilt three times over. You know, so the first one's the one I told you about in the third grade. Then in college, I made another quilt, but I have a feeling that's going to come up in a question on down the road. So I'll save that one. Usually when people ask about my first quilt, I tell them that I started with making baby quilts. One very particular baby quilt for a friend of mine who had their first kid. So it's kind of fun to think about is the length of my quilting career will always be the age of this kid, Michael, on the West Coast, right? (laughs) So if I ever forget how long I've been quilting, let me just ring up my friend and see how old Michael is these days. (laughs) And so I started with, I'd always been a creative person. I'd bounce around from medium to medium. And so when I made that first quilt, I assumed that I would move along soon after. But halfway through that quilt, I got an idea for a second one. Halfway through the second one, I got an idea for the third one. And now here, I've lost count. 150, 200, how many quilts have I made? And it just it shows no signs of slowing up. I find quilting to be such a flexible medium mm-hmm. and such a beautiful container for story and memory and history that I, I don't see the well exhausting and running dry anytime soon. Yeah. So have you always made quilts from whatever cool materials you can get your hands on? Or did you start off with sort of commercial fabrics and then move into that upcycled idea? So both, both. The first quilt, I can see through lines. And this is something interesting, I think, for the listeners to think about. When you think of your earliest quilts that might look very different than the things you're making today, but what are the through lines that trace all the way through? And when I think about that first quilt, there was some salvage material in there. It was wonky because I didn't know how to sew, right? And it was colorful and joyful, all of these things, even though I would probably never make a pinwheel quilt again. No shade on the pinwheels. It's just not my thing. Um, 
I never make that quilt again, but I see myself present from the very beginning. Yeah. Now, sharp turn to the left when it came to quilt number two, quilt number three. I was like, okay, if I'm going to be a real quilter, I got to go to the fabric store. I got to go buy the good stuff. And I have never been more stressed out in my entire life, Brandy. <laughs> I, I, I went to the city quilter in New York City, RIP. They, they've closed since then. And I spent an agonizing two hours just carrying bolts of fabric around and trying to figure out yardage of what went with what, et cetera, and all this. And I just don't ever want to repeat that experience, right? One, because it was expensive for me, right? It was a lot of money to make the quilt that I was, I was hoping to make. And two, I got, I got all this beautiful fabric and I took it home and I was scared to cut into it, right? Because I had invested so much money. Yeah. And so I pretty quickly determined that if I was going to really do this quilting thing, I had to find a way to make it more affordable. And so for me, working with repurposed materials started just because I'm cheap, right? Yeah. I had to be. I had to make it work. And so I started thinking about, okay, what clothes do I have in my closet that are ribs, stained, buttons, missing things that, you know, I wasn't wearing them anymore. And then also thrift shops. What can I find? And in a place like New York City, you know, what can I find on the sidewalk? <laughs> right? A lot oh. of people just drop stuff. So I work yeah. with those in quilts too. Well, and it's a huge adventure for me to even go thrift shopping in Toronto here up in Canada, the big city, you know, like I'm in a you know, small town, and but I can't even imagine what the thrift scene is like in New York. You know, there's a big, a lot of people think that New York must have a wonderful thrift scene. It does not. No. <laughs> Actually, I'm like, I got to get out of here. I need some thrift stores. I don't know. I I trace it up to like skyrocketing rental prices. And, uh, you know, we just, there's not room in the New York economy anymore for small shops like thrift shops, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And I'll just tell a quick small story about the thrift scene there because it's kind of known, maybe it's just Winnipeggers who know this, but it's kind of known as the thrift capital of Canada. <clears throat> so one thing that was really joyful for me was that when I got pregnant with my son, I was shopping for thrift clothes in my pregnancy because they're kind of temporary clothes. You're not going to need them forever. And so I go into a thrift store and there's all these brand new like tags on clothing. I was so excited. I was like, "What? this is $2 for this shirt. How is this so cheap when it's brand new? And she goes, oh, I go to Toronto and I go to Vancouver and I, I get all the stuff that's like four years ago and Winnipegers love it. And I was like, this is the best day ever. I really love that idea of thrifting. But but yeah, I can't imagine thrifting in New York. And I guess, you know, if it's not that great of a thrift scene, where do you find your stuff then? Where do you go? Oh, the South, Brandy, the Southern United States. I mean, oh. that's where the good stuff is at because it seems like down here, you got the bigger chains like Goodwill, but so many churches also run uh -huh. charity shops and things like that. So that, yeah, there, there's no paucity of materials to work with down south. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's keep going with your quilting story. How did your path blossom from there? So for ten years, I worked two full time jobs simultaneously. It was a nightmare looking back on it. I didn't realize it at the time how much I worked, but I was a full time high school teacher. I worked in the public schools. In New York City, I quit about a year and a half ago. So that was 18 years of teaching. I always said I'd get into teaching and then I'd get out when I figured out what it is I really wanted to do. And that only just took about 20 years, but yeah. better late than never. And so while I was teaching, I was also making quilts. I did that for a long time. I would work full time in the classroom and I'd come home and sew essentially full time. And those were my weekends too with sewing. And then fast forward to the pandemic, which is a milestone 
in nearly all of our lives. And I saw a chance to pivot. I realized that the kinds of things that I had learned in the classroom, the skills I had gotten as an educator, I could really put them into use in building a new kind of community, a new kind of space for people to come together. And so I devoted a lot of my time into developing my presence on social media, which I'd always had kind of a complex relationship with. You know, I think most of us, I think it's safe to say, have those moments, those darker moments where we're scrolling through and we think, what am I doing in my life? Look at all these people making beautiful things. And I'm just sitting here making things that I call quilts, you know? And so I, I had a complicated relationship in the beginning, but then something shifted inside of me. And so I share it in case it's helpful for other people. And that is, I started thinking of social media less like a, a way to show off or brag and more about a way to tell stories and to connect with people and an act of service, right? I come from a long line of teachers and ministers and missionaries and pastors and judges and lawyers, et cetera. So I think it's built in me to want to bring people together. And so when I saw that that could be a lens for social media, then all the all the complexities I'd felt about it faded away. Right? And so I spent the first couple of years of the pandemic making a lot of quilts, talking about quilts quite a bit on social media. And people were connecting. People liked what I was telling. People enjoyed the stories and the energy and the point of view. And what eventually came out of that after a couple of years of really diving deep with those stories online was I saw a chance to leave teaching and create what is now the Quilty Nook, which is an online community for textile artists. <laughs> and what I hadn't realized and what was such a pleasant surprise is that all those years in the classroom really had set me up. As a teacher, when I was still in the classroom, I didn't know what kind of skill set I had that might be transferable. But then when I start organizing quilters and bringing people together over creative prompts and sewing circles and things like that, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm an old hand at this. Like I, I know how to do this. It's just second nature now. So it feels really lovely to be in this second iteration of life where... Um, I just told my partner the other day, he's, he says, so what do you do when you're not quilting? I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> there is no not quilting. <laughs> there is no not quilting. I said, baby, I got a sun in my solar system now. Right? And that sun is quilts. And I love it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of partner, let's take a moment to find out where are you living now and who do you surround yourself with every day? Well, where I'm living now is a very complicated question in this, <laughs> in this season of life. Uh, my mailing address, my mail goes to my apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Um, but I'm back and forth to North Carolina quite a bit because I am looking to move back south to reconnect with family and reconnect with my roots and just be with my capital P people for a little while. You know, yeah. um, So I think North Carolina or Tennessee could eventually be the landing pad. But who do I surround myself with? Well, besides my partner, who is, mm, what's the word? Long-suffering. Uh -huh. <laughs> He's so patient. And I don't know. I, I couldn't do it without him, without a doubt. Creatively, I have been so fortunate to get in this little cluster of very talented textile artists. I'm thinking of my good friend, Heidi Parks, who was also an educator. She was an art educator before leaving to become a quilter and a teacher. And so she really paved the way for me to say, okay, think of what else a quilter can do in this world, right? She was inspired by Luke Haynes, who was a former architect 
turned quilter and who is making a living professionally off of quilts. And so Luke is now a dear friend. And Luke does some amazing things with the intersection of quilts and architecture that he's really exploring with buildings of quilts, which I just find fascinating. And I also, I'm I'm so thankful for my friendship with Amanda Natick out of Chicago. She's a current art educator and quilter. And she just has this gift that, I don't know. I mean, it makes me think of my mom again sitting at the table practicing her strokes. Everything she makes looks so graceful and effortless. And I know that it's not, but it's almost as if she just drops fabric on the floor and then stitches it down. And it turns out beautiful every time. Yeah, yeah. So great. Okay, so we talked a little bit about already the transition you made from teaching to quilting. Was there kind of a defining moment when you felt, yeah, this is my thing. Like, I don't have to teach anymore. I can do this for a living. Yeah, yeah. I remember, and in case this is helpful, I'll share this tidbit. I remember talking to a teacher years ago saying, God, I gotta gotta do something else. This just doesn't fit in the bill anymore. And she says, well... If you haven't seen the exit door yet, it just means it's not time to go. Mm-hmm. And such a simple but profound statement was really helpful for me and kind of was the carrot at the end of my stick for a number of years there towards the end. But then eventually I did see the exit door. I saw the sign. I said, okay, here we go. And that was, I, I first started with Patreon, to be honest with you. And that was a really short blip. That lasted maybe three months. But I told my sweetie, I said, okay, baby, if I can get X number of dollars of support each month, then I can pay our bills and I can quit teaching. Right? And so by the end of that summer, I hadn't hit that mark, but I was close enough to be foolhardy enough to say, okay, bye. I just left teaching. And very quickly, Patreon as a model I saw wasn't doing the thing I wanted to do because Patreon is built on this one-to-many kind of broadcast channel, right? So like if I'm a creator and I only just want to like throw images at you, then that's a great platform. But if I'm looking to have connection and community, I needed something else. And so I quit my job. And then within the same month, I was like, all right, sweetie, I'm going to drop Patreon altogether and hop over to Mighty Networks. And he was like, are you crazy? You just quit your job. There's no dependable income. And here you are just throwing caution to the wind. But I knew deep down that's what had to happen right? Thoreau, I think, said that, you know, the minute you realize you're on the wrong train is the minute you got to get off, right? The longer you stay on that train, the farther lost you get, right? And so I was like, yeah, it's it's just time to move. And so I switched to Mighty Networks and I love it because it feels familiar to us as a platform. You get kind of built on the Facebook model. So it feels familiar that way. And it gives us ample chances to come together, sew together, talk about creative quandaries that we find ourselves in, to have workshops, book clubs, all kinds of things. And so I saw that exit sign, that radiant exit sign. I walked through it into this beautiful world of the Quilty Nook, and here we are today, you and me. Yeah. Well, and it sounds so good, right? I mean, there are a lot of quilters out there, even listening right now, who might be thinking, gosh, I wish I could leave my career. I wish I could do this for a living. So can you give us a little about how do you actually make income as a creator like this? Well, my buddy Luke that I just mentioned is known to say, you will never sell a quilt to a quilter. Mm -hmm. And that's generally true, right? Like most quilters won't make a living selling quilts. 
right? And so that means we need to think of another way to center our lives around quilts that could be financially stabilizing. And so for some people, like my friend Heidi, that's one of the things she does is coming up with quilt patterns, right? And her patterns are, they're, they're not so much like your traditional block patterns as they are just kind of um, prompts for here's how you can play with fabric to make this thing, to tell this story, right? Like I'm thinking of her vignettes pattern that's so popular and people have made beautiful quilts from that. So Heidi does really well with patterns and teaching. I do well with the community building that I do. And my buddy Luke <laughs> likes to say he just throws spaghetti at the wall and sees what sticks. And it seems to be working for him. So, you know, take it, you know, the, the thing about any of any of these paths is you can't bottle them up, distill them and sell them. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. this, this path that I'm on, I feel uniquely suited for. Yeah. It was working well for me. So I suppose I would encourage folks to think about what's the part of quilting that you really enjoy? Is there a way to continue enjoying it and make money at it? Yeah. If so, that might be an interesting area to poke around and explore. Yeah. And this all ties back to what you said earlier about online, on social media, creating a community and just putting your story out there rather than trying to have this good post or that good post that might resonate with people. You just tell your story and you just be yourself. And when you create that community, then the business side of things will come because you're creating something to fill a need rather than trying to sell a quilt to a quilter, right? That's right. I think too about um, like attracts like. You know, so I'm out there telling my story. So I am broadcasting my values through my stories, right? Which means the people that are interested in what I have to say, we must overlap quite a bit with our values, which means translates that when you come to the nook, then what you find are a bunch of people who are kind and supportive and encouraging people who like to know the best way to do things, but also like to break the rules just to see what happens. Yeah. Right? People who are seriously interested in connection and what that can mean, like how can we do more together than we can do on our own, I think is a through line through a lot of us on the nook. Yeah. So all of these years of storytelling has been magnetizing all these cultures with a similar ethos to this, this kind of concentrated place of the nook. And it's it still feels like magic. Like to this day, I've never had to like intercede in a disagreement on the nook. There's been no nastiness on the nook, knock on wood to this day. I mean, we're going into our third year here. And so it's just, I don't know, chalk it up to the universe. It's a beautiful place to live. Yeah. And how do you feel like your style has changed over time? Well, I was always interested in improv quilting. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, it wasn't very improv. It was like 1% improv, but I was still interested in it. I didn't want to, I knew I couldn't make perfectly matched points, you know, so I wasn't even going to try that. Um, my earliest quilts were a lot of geometric patchwork, deeply inspired by many of the quilters from G-Spend. Early on, the work of Irene Williams from G-Spend, outside of G-Spend actually. And ironically, she was kind of a, an outlier in the community from what I understand, because she worked a lot by herself, right? And so here we are talking a lot about community. Irene worked a lot by herself. But what that means when you look at her quilts, at least in my eyes, is she's doing some crazy stuff. 
she's not doing what her neighbors and friends are doing, right? My favorite quilt of hers is she took two polyester basketball jerseys and split them up the side seams and then splayed them out flat, kind of like a spatchcock chicken or something. And then just stitched them together and like filled in the holes where the arms and the head would have gone with some white fabric and called it a day. That's a quilt. And I'm like, Irene, you're so badass. Can I say badass? I just love how she just didn't seemingly didn't care to like tie into any kind of convention about quilts. And so um, I was really inspired by a lot of the, the geometries that I saw in her and other people from G-Spend. Now, over time, I would say like the last four or five years or so, I've moved away from patchwork. In fact, I was just talking to somebody the other day. I'm not sure when the last time I, I made an actual pieced patchwork. So much of what I do now is hand stitching and it's a lot of applique. Like I'll often start with an old baby quilt that I find at the thrift store and then just applique everything on top. Yeah. So I can just kind of uh, inherit that quilty crinkle that so many of us love. Uh, and so now my style is definitely slower. It's centered on storytelling. I think a lot about history and memory. It's more experimental. Some of my pieces are three-dimensional. I made a three-dimensional landscape out of a quilt one time. Some of them are infographics. What? That's interesting. Some of them, yeah, some of them are just old entire garments just stitched down whole, right? Wow, yeah. Can you give us an example of the infographic idea? That sounds really cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the biggest collection that I'm working on right now in my personal work is called Southern White Amnesia. And it's exploring the stories that Southern white American families tell themselves about their own history and the stories they don't tell themselves about their own history. And I remember, I'm a family historian in my family, and I remember about five years or so ago, stumbling across the first records that my ancestors had enslaved people. And so I go to someone in my family who who should know these things. I said, is it true that we enslaved people? I mean, that's what I'm seeing here, you know? And they real quick said, no, of course not. I think we would know. And that was a light bulb moment for me. How many other Southern white folks are walking around just assuming they would know if their ancestors had engaged in slavery and not questioning inherited wealth and inherited privilege and things like that that gets passed down because of that. And so fast forward to the infographic. One of the pieces in this series outlines the various branches of my family tree and highlights the branches that engaged in slavery versus the ones that didn't, and simultaneously overlays access to higher education. Wow. So what you see when you look at this in my family is the one branch of the family. So, you know, they say everybody has four main branches, right? So your grandparents' lines. When you look at my grandparents' lines, three out of the four did not engage in slavery. And when you look at my dad's side in particular, he was first-generation college student because of that. On my mom's side, on that last branch of the family tree, engaged in slavery, and they've been going to, they've had access to higher education for generations. I mean, going back to the mid-1800s. And so I find it really interesting to think about these narratives that I see in my own family and then think about how to represent them. Mm-hmm. And so an infographic just seemed the best way. It's a fan grid, which is one of many ways of showing a genealogical family history. And I like it because it's so compact. It's not sprawling like a family tree. So it fits nicely on a quilt. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating how you're 
you're taking what you're experiencing in your world as your family historian and you're speaking it to your community through a quilt. I I think that's fascinating. So let's just continue on this conversation of design because I love, you know, like, so when you see something in your world or you have this idea of genealogy or whatever you're thinking, it sparks an idea for you. How do you capture that? Do you, do you have a sketchbook? Are you a digital guy where you go straight to your computer or do you just pull out what you're using and start to create without any kind of advanced plan? All of the above. Um, (laughs) So my buddy Luke likes to say there's two ways to make a quilt. You can start with an idea and then round up the materials, or you can start with the materials and find your way to the idea. Maybe I'm paraphrasing. Luke will tell me if I'm wrong, but I tend to be more the latter. Start with the materials and then let the idea come through those. I really think of fabric as a way of unlocking certain channels in my own understanding about what I'm experiencing. And so I trust the fabrics that I'm drawn to as I work with them quietly and slowly over time will reveal themselves to me. So generally, my design process just looks like slapping things together on the design wall, seeing what kind of fabrics go well together, see what's speaking to me. The only time that I really do any kind of pre-planning would be if I'm working with a client and they, I need to somehow give them a sneak peek to what I see in my brain. And so mm-hmm. then I'll sketch it out on the iPad or something like that and send them some images. And 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 that works well. Of course, it usually ends up looking totally different, but <laughs> this is the yeah. best we can do. Yeah. Do you remember your very first, you know, client custom quilt? How did it feel to go through that process? Wow. Yeah, I know about this quilt a little bit. Okay, so it was... <laughs> king size quilt red and white stripes charged them $400 for it which at the time felt like a lot of money now I'm like what all that labor (laughs) yeah because it was so big even just to like baste it into a quilt sandwich I had to find a friend's apartment that had a floor space big enough and I was just like I worked so hard on that quilt but that person has popped back into my life over and over throughout the years. So it's it's cool. It's all good, you know? Yeah. And it just takes a while to 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 find your worth, to know your worth, to to find your number. And I'm still finding my number. You mm-hmm. know, it fluctuates. But uh I view it more like an ongoing process that way. Yeah, yeah. I want to touch on color with you a little bit. Where do you pull your color inspiration from? Do you think about the color wheel or, you know, the rules about how color should be? Or do you throw caution to the wind and use your gut? Well, let me see if I can't put it into words because it feels all very intuitive. But um, I do like to play around with saturation. So using the same color, but in different saturations, I think is often one of my go-tos. If I'm looking for an exciting moment, I will think about What's the opposite color, the complementary color on the color wheel? Because if you really need someone's attention to go to a certain part of your composition, just slap the most vibrant opposite color you can think of right there and your job is done. Yeah, I tend to also shy away from black and white. And I don't know why that is other than just to say that it feels very stark to me. Yeah, And I think I'm more of a, I'm more of a softy. And so I like to, you know, I pull it in from time to time, but oh, when I do, it just feels so bold and so harsh that it usually comes back out. So I tend to gravitate more towards the middle of the spectrum. Yeah. And there's something satisfying by just having a pile of materials and just enjoying that for what it is, right? (laughs) You know, 
Well, and that makes me think about what my friend Heidi Park says, which, you know, you hear people say, oh, I can't pick colors, right? That's why we like our jelly rolls and things like that. Look yeah. at me speaking the lingo. <laughs> so we like our jelly rolls. Um, but then Heidi says, but you got dressed this morning. Look at the outfit you're wearing. Those colors go really nicely together. We can do this, right? Yeah. It is our birthright as a creative maker person to pull colors together that satisfy our eye and our sensibility. It doesn't matter whether anybody else likes it. Yeah, right. absolutely. Trust your gut. We see what we love in the world. That's why quilters are snapping pictures all the time of, you know, the the wall in the bathroom in the airport, because it just looks so great. It's such a good color palette. So yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what do you have to offer on your website? Well, the first thing you'll see are a bunch of pictures of me and my quilts. Surprise, surprise. I like taking pictures with my quilts because I do feel like my quilts are not separate objects from me, that my quilts require me to be the voice to tell the story they want to tell. And I need them to lay that foundation and to make the story visible and tangible for people. So I, I very much try to document the relationship between artist and object on my website. Yeah. What else? There are some free downloadable resources. One of my favorite, one of the most popular ones is 10 Things I Wish I Had Known Before I Started Quilting. Some just reflections on that. I just came up with a new one, actually, before you and I were talking, I was putting the final touches on it, about how to find your quilty crew when you're the only quilter you know. Uh. And so it's 13 tips. Most of them are good ones. There's a couple bad ones in there just for fun. But that'll be on the website soon, maybe by the time this airs. What else can you find? You can find links to Softbulk, which were throughout the majority of the pandemic, two years strong. Me and Heidi and Luke met once a month and we had a YouTube series, which we invited different quilters and quilt adjacent people from around yeah. the world to join us. And we talked about quilts. So those links are all there. So what else is on the website? Well, if you'd like to keep in touch, I do send out, you know, in the past, I call it a newsletter. Now I just kind of call it an email. Just like, it's just a yeah. short little weekly thing. That's just whatever's top of mind for me that week, whatever resources that I've found helpful, I pass those along to people. So whether it's upcoming workshops or a new episode of my podcast theme side being released or just a cool article about quilting that I found, right? I email that out once a week. So if that sounds like something folks are interested in, head on over to the website, you'll see a big black bar across the top and just sign up there. Yeah, that sounds good. And so if you're listening right now and you want to know where the website is, it's ZachFoster.com. And Zach is Z-A-K or Z-A-K if you're in the USA. That's right. Um, so that's where you can find it. And I want to talk a little bit about soft book because you briefly mentioned it, but can you describe this to us? Like how do people get involved and what will they find if they're listening in to soft book? So Soft Bulk was the original brainchild of Luke, who early on in the pandemic corralled me and ID together for this YouTube series. So it's video. Most of them tend to be between an hour and a half and two hours long. We each share a little bit about whatever we're working on at that moment. So we catch you up to speed on our various projects, and then we'll have a guest at the very end. And we had, for example, Sherry Lynn Wood and Aikijima and Sarah Nishiora. Libs Elliott, Jackie Gehring, Joe Cunningham, folks, you know, that people recognize in the Colton world. It's been a wonderful way to get to know other artists out there. And it's it's also been a really sweet time for me because this is before I started the podcast. I really appreciated the chance to have kind of a long form format for storytelling, right? Because on social media, 
90 second reel is considered way too long. <laughs> and I need more than that sometimes, you know, tell my stories. And so I appreciated having soft bulk each month to do that. And we are having a soft bulk reunion coming up on November 1st. So we're talking about the website and soft bulk is listed right there. So you can click on it right on Zach's website. Okay. So I want to go into a conversation about some collaborative quilts. So can you tell me some of the projects you've done with other people that have been memorable for you? Collaborations are something I want so much more of in my life because I find that they bring out the best when it's a good combination when it's a good partnership they bring out the best of both of us so the most recent one i've done would have been heidi wow i'm starting to feel like a broken record heidi 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 (laughs) anyway (laughs) would have been with heidi because i went to visit her in milwaukee and we got in a conversation about just the, the season that we find ourselves in in this life and how even just a couple of years ago we couldn't have imagined the relative stability and security that we feel in our lives professionally and economically, financially, all that. And we just got really excited. We just took a moment to just really just kind of relish in the fact that um, we can pay our bills, right? And so we decided to make a quilt celebrating just how far we had come. And so we call it Yes More Please. And we used a lot of fabrics that we'd gotten on our that particular trip together at the rummage sale at the Wisconsin Quilt Museum. And we played around getting the main, the principal parts of the composition we made together. And then we cut the quilt in half. And I took the right half and she took the left half and we worked on them independently in our own separate towns. And then she mailed me her half. I stitched them both together. You would never know there once two halves. And then tried to find ways to balance out both halves, right? So Heidi had left me a lot of little nooks and crannies open that I could mm-hmm. squeeze in little elements here and there. So now the whole thing feels very maximalist. I love it. And so much of that is because Heidi set up things that I could riff off of. I was doing some things that she could riff off of. And so it made for a beautiful collaboration. Yeah. Now, Amanda Nadig, who I mentioned a moment ago, we've done a couple collaborations together and we got a third one coming up. The one we're working on right now is for somebody who has a robust silk tie collection, high-end collection of silk ties. He's retired now, and he liked to, he likes to say that time was he could wear a different tie every day of the week and wouldn't have to repeat for an entire calendar year. So he's got a lot of ties. Wow. So he has shipped us a big box of all these ties because he doesn't need them anymore in retirement. And Amanda and I have decided that we're going to flip the script a little bit. We're going to do the bulk of the work apart first and then come together to assemble the pieces. And the plan that we've come up with is to make what we call two scrolls. So they're six inches by 32 feet. Oh, wow. So just take that in for a minute. Six inches by 32 feet. And so we're going to work independently to make these two 32 foot long scrolls, tying hodgepodge these ties down sewing them down and then when we get together in chicago here in a few weeks we have essentially we just made two bolts of fabric essentially right and so we're going to piece those scrolls together in some way that makes sense for a quilt so i'm excited about that one yeah and it kind of actually sounds like it would be a really cool installation project in progress (laughs) it would be really cool yeah no we're gonna have to document it for sure Another project, this would have been Amanda and I's first collaboration. It was for a documentary film called Maestra, which is a international competition for female symphony conductors that was taking place in Paris. 
the director heard about it on NPR and decided to go film this whole situation and make a documentary out of it. And it was fascinating to watch what women have to jump through to get in front of a symphony, right? Like how hard they had to work to get to that platform, right? And so the director came to us and said, I should say the co-director, the friend of the director came to me and Amanda said, would you make a quilt for the head director, the number one, as a surprise? And the first thought was, well, here's the movie poster. How about you make a quilt out of the movie poster? And y'all can't see, but I'm giving Brandy the stink eye because I don't work that way. (laughs) I don't just replicate. You know, that's not that's not my thing. So I said, because I've gotten pretty good at this over time. I say, you know, we we can do that. But what about I explore the same questions you were exploring? What were some of the things that you were really interested in with this project? And so he shares. And I said, great. So Amanda and I will explore those questions. And that will be your maestro quilt. And, you know, I said it in a way that's real nice and stuff. So he was excited. And so we came together. I, I flew to Chicago. Amanda and I did not buy a single piece of fabric for this quilt. We just rifled through her stash, which is all just odds and ends shoved into crates, and made this beautiful red and black quilt that has the, the word maestra nice and large on it. We're playing with shears. We're playing with gold lame. We're playing with silk. We're playing with all kinds of stuff. And it was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. And then to see it up at the premiere in Tribeca, dream come true. Oh, I can imagine. So did you guys go together? Like, what was that day like? I got to go. Yeah, because it was in New York. But no, Amanda, unfortunately, had to teach so that she couldn't fly in. So I took a lot of pictures. Yeah, that sounds great, though. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about your lectures. So you've had a few great gigs. And coming up, you're doing a lecture at an art conference. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, the you know, the first big one I gave would have been last November 2022, and it was at the International Quilt Museum. Oh. I had been invited to speak at a fundraising benefit. It was a collaboration between IQM and a grief center in Lincoln, Nebraska. And since I do so much grief work with my memory quilts and my burial quilts and funeral quilts, things like that, I guess I was a natural. So they brought me over. And that was the first time I got to stand live in front of a big room of people and share my stories. I do it all the time on Instagram, but I'm just staring at a little square of metal and glass. You know, it's a very different thing. It was so beautiful to be in physical proximity with the people that were listening to me tell the stories about these pieces. I could look across the room and see who was with me. And who was not with me? There's this one dude on the back row. And I'm like, buddy, you can stand up and leave anytime you want to. No one's holding you hostage. But then, you know, it's just as a speaker, you just put a little pink bubble around them and you move on. You make eye contact with the people that are really with you, that are giving you life, because that's what you need when you're in front of the room. So that was November. And now, yes, coming up this week, actually, I'll be going to Raleigh, North Carolina to speak at the State Associations of Art Educators as their keynote. And I don't know, working title of this is going to be The Mysterious Knownness of Textiles, which is just it's a dumb expression, but it's also poetic. I love The Mysterious Knownness because everyone knows textiles. We live, most of us, the majority of our time on this planet swaddled in clothes, Yeah. yet we think so little about it. Yeah. And so I'm actually going to walk through this conference center. They're telling me 500 people are going to be there. That's going to be a new record for me. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> but I'm going to walk them through this 
just short visualization where I'm going to ask them to put their hands in their lap, close their eyes, and what do they feel? They're going to feel some kind of fabric. Mm-hmm. And we're going to explore that mentally. What's the temperature of the fabric? What's the texture? What's the fiber content? Let's see if they know that, right? Then I'm going to ask them to find a seam in their garment somewhere. Who sewed that seam? How many garments have they sewn that day before they sewed this particular garment for you? How many did they sew after? How do they feel about their work? All these things, right? To me, that's what makes textiles so fascinating is that they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. But because there's so much stuff going on, we don't have time to truly investigate the textiles that we find in our lives. And textiles can hold so many stories and memories and connections that I find that to be really fascinating. So for me, that's what I'm calling the mysterious knownness of fabric. Yeah, that is so cool. And you you just had me there for a moment thinking, how fast did they sew these jeans together? And how old are they? There's so many questions, right? About how we come to have these clothes on our body and these curtains or these blankets. or And also that leads to the idea that when you put a quilt on the wall, that is just surrounding yourself even with even more of that comfort, right? Yeah. Love that conversation. Okay. So lectures sound good. So if people actually want to book you for a lecture, can they contact you through your website or just message you on Instagram? Sure. I'd I'd love to hear from anybody. Okay. So is there a quilt or a quilt project that has been most memorable for you? You know, that feels a little bit like asking a parent who their favorite child is, but (laughs) (laughs) the first one to come to mind, and so I'll just take that for what it is, is a quilt I made about a year ago, and it's called Can You Not Be a Little Less Intimate? Which is a funny syntax, but here's the story. So it was actually the penultimate episode of Softbulk. I was sharing a series of quilts called the Sex Quilts. I had been reflecting on my sex life and mojo and issues of sexuality in quilts. And I was sharing that work on Softbulk. And I hope, you know, folks listening to me now get the sense that like, I'm not here to be salacious. I'm not here to like be graphic or like really throw stuff in your face. It was a thoughtful presentation of what modern sexuality can look like. Yeah. And almost immediately after that conversation, I get an email from an artist whose work I really admire. And the person said, a long list of things. Essentially, can you not be a little less intimate? And reading that question on the screen just felt like she was asking me to you know, put my, put my light under a bushel, like the old song says. They're like, you know, go back in the closet. Like it, it felt really bad. It felt really bad. And this is where I'm so thankful to have a creative practice. I don't know what people do when they have strong emotional reactions to things and don't have, you know, secure pathways to like really explore those feelings and process those feelings. Yeah. So I just start sewing. I make this entire quilt inside of 48 hours. I mean, that shows wow. you the speed and the dedication I was working. And what I did is I took the shirt, the t-shirt that I was wearing that day for that presentation when I shared about the sex clothes, which was a t-shirt I loved. It was my favorite t-shirt. I had found it in North Carolina in the woods. It was this beautiful red t-shirt. It was a great color. It was threadbare in places because it's so old. And it's just, I don't know. I loved it. But I said, it is time to retire this shirt because I got to do something with these hard feelings I'm having. And so I took the shirt that I was wearing. I hand cut a bunch of letters 
that was that line from that person's email, can you not be a little less intimate? And I slid them up in between the two layers, the front and the back of the t-shirt, because like I said, it was threadbare. You can just see the contrast of the letters coming through if you look at it, but you kind of got to get close. And so what that ended up doing for me was suggesting, now this is an idea that I did not walk into this project with, but this is the idea that came out through the fabric. So this goes back to your design question. Yeah. What I walked away with after making that quilt was artists work with the material of their lives. That's what we do. End of story, right? The materials of our lives. So I literally took this shirt off my back, one of my favorites, and I sewed it down. I took it out of commission to make that point for this person. And so I shared that on what was the last episode of Softbulk. And it was, I don't know, it got an amazing response. People were just overwhelmingly positive. And I feel now when I when I think back at that time that that quilt was truly a crucible for me. It allowed me to burn off all the negative energy, turn it into something constructive and affirmative, mm-hmm. and share it back to the world in a way that's helpful. And so if you ask me what's memorable, I just feel so much gratitude when I think about the the process I went through for that particular piece. Yeah. And this this next question is just a continuation of this whole feeling in your quilting world what brings you joy so many things brandy i love the transformation that happens with materials as they come together in my hands you know when a flat piece of fabric gets quilted down it becomes a crinkly piece of fabric that's a thing of beauty that is a thing of beauty when i can adjust my stitches from big stitches to small stitches, close or spread out. And that changes the way the thing transforms in my lap. That's beautiful. Outside of my personal practice, when I think more collective and more on a communal level, I get a lot of joy and a lot of energy from people having those aha moments, right? When they're looking at their own work and they're seeing something they did and maybe hadn't seen or realize they had done it until someone just points a finger at it. And those moments are so illuminating for them that it's a joy to be a witness to that. And that's the kind of thing we do in various spaces, the Nook being one of them, but many others as well. Yeah. Right now we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk all about Zach's studio space, his podcast, Words on Quilts, the Nook, and a big project coming up. We'll be right back. Discover a haven for sewing enthusiasts at angelssewing.com. Our store in Salem, New Hampshire is dedicated to providing a vast selection of high-quality sewing machines, fabrics, and accessories to help bring your creative visions to life. Whether you're a seasoned quilter, embroiderer, bag maker, or a beginner embarking on your first sewing project, we offer a range of products to suit every skill level. Our knowledgeable and friendly staff are always on hand to assist with your needs, ensuring a seamless shopping experience. Explore our online store and find endless inspiration for your next sewing adventure. Dive into our online treasure trove at angelssewing.com and let your creativity flow seamlessly with every stitch. At angelssewing.com, we're not just sewing, we're building a community of creators. There is a new quilted coat in town, and you are not going to want to miss it. 
They thought we couldn't do it, but we did it anyway. Who created it? Thequilting.ca. Why is it different? You no longer have to struggle with paper patterns and pins. The cut lines are stitched directly onto the quilt with a computerized long arm. It is so easy, you simply just cut and sew. Not only that, it's reversible. You can choose an option for less binding. And it has pockets. The Copenhagen Quilted Coat Pattern just released on October 27th and is now available. Don't have a long arm? No worries. You can either purchase the digital pattern for use with your computerized long arm or find someone to quilt your coat for you at www.thequilting.ca. That's T-H-E-Q-U-I-L-T-I-N-G dot C-A. For listeners of the Quilter on Fire podcast only, use FIRE20 at checkout for 20% off and make your showstopper quilted coat today. And we are back with Zach Foster. So Zach, I would love to know, where do you create? Tell us about your studio space. Well, it's called Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) Okay, true and untrue. Um, I do love to sew outside. I do love to sew in public. And... New Yorkers, God love them. 99 times out of 100, you can be doing the craziest, quiltiest thing. I could be hanging quilts on walls, taking pictures of them, sewing right there in the middle of a sidewalk, doesn't matter. And New Yorkers will walk right by you, not even look at you, which I've come to understand as a sign of respect, right? We're living in a very densely populated area. And so we're affording one another a certain privacy, which I appreciate. But also, I'm the kind of person who likes to talk about their quilts. So I'm like, please talk to me. Please talk to me. So I really do appreciate when people do stop. Um, Yes. So I work out in public. I love working at the park. Now at home, when I'm at home in Brooklyn, we have a 900 square foot one bedroom apartment. And the reason we got this particular space is because it has an eat-in kitchen. And so the eat-in portion of the kitchen is the original Quilty Nook. That's where I got yeah. the name from for the community because I'd always called that part of the apartment the, the Nook, the Quilty Nook. Yeah. And so <laughs> it ain't much to brag about. It's about maybe eight feet by six feet. It's a pretty tiny little space. I can stand in one spot and just kind of rotate and I can be at the sewing machine or the ironing table or my fabric stash or whatever. Yeah. But... um it's what I got. And it's more than what some people have. And so I'm very thankful for the space that I, I do have. On one wall, on the back wall of the kitchen is my big design wall, which also doubles as a rotating gallery. So you see it straight from the main part of the house. When you walk in, you see whatever quilt I'm working on is right there on the wall, which can be nice, can also be a mess sometimes. <laughs> there is on the left-hand wall, to the left of the design wall, a series of stacked crates that I have color coordinated i'm trying a new system brandy for organizing my fabric and that is i used to have a hodgepodge system for fabric (laughs) organization meaning i had like a chester drawers that were basically color coded but then i had a special box for wools and a special box for silks and then another thing of lace over here and 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 they were spread out in three different rooms and it was just it was just kind of a mess and i realized when i thought about my process that when I'm in the middle of a project and I need a piece of fabric, I'm not thinking, oh, let me go get a piece of wool. Wool would be perfect here. I'm thinking, I need this medium blue that's kind of gray and dusty looking. doesn't matter what the fiber content is. So now what I've done is I've got, I think, 13 or 14 crates. And so I have a red crate with all the fibers and all the things mixed together, an orange crate, a pink crate, 
two blues, because I use a lot of blue, one purple, one black, two whites, because I use a lot of white. I have a brown and something that <laughs> some quilters may or may not have. I have a whole crate just for metallic fabrics. I love a little bit of shine. Yeah. You know, it's a little, little bit of glitz and glamour every once in a while. And so then, so the idea here, Brandy, is that when one crate fills up, let's say it's the pink crate, then I can no longer get more pink fabric without de-stashing the pink crate. So instead of like trying to just always keep an eye on the entire fabric stash, I'm just trying to think about colors one at a time so I can just kind of keep it manageable, which is very important in a small space. On the other side, directly opposite of the crate wall is my all-in-one table. So that's where the ironing board is. It's also the cutting table. It's also the hold all the fabric I'm working with table. It's kind of a mess, but it looks out over a window which looks out over the back wall of the apartment building behind us. Not yeah. glamorous, but hey, it's it's some daylight. And then behind me is the kitchen in all of its glory. And so that's that's how I work. Luckily to date, there have not been too many food stains on my quilts. If there are, <laughs> it's chocolate, and that's my own fault. So Yeah, and something I love about your website is you have such great photos, but under the About Me tab... You can actually look at a photo of you in front of a quilt. And is that the space you're talking about with the table right beside you? That is the space that I've just described. You can see the all-in-one table right there. Yeah. You can see the design wall. And the particular quilt there you see, I call jackpot because yeah. this was not intentional. But this is one of the earlier quilts. I was referencing the geometric patchwork of G's Bend. And I think the influence here is, is, is evident. And when I made this quilt, I started seeing all these red sevens popping out. And so that was the motif yeah. I really leaned in on. And I got halfway through this quilt, which was actually a quilt for a client, but don't tell them. <laughs> when I got halfway through this quilt, I was like, this is the zackiest quilt I've ever made. Like it just <laughs> felt so much like me and fabric, yeah. the color choices and the movement and the energy and all this, that I knew I could no longer give it to the client. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I wrote them. I said, I'll make you another one. Da, 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 da. This quilt now is my burial quilt. Aww. And this is a quilt that God willing, one day my body will be wrapped up in and put four feet under. Because six feet is too much, folks. We don't need that. <laughs> four feet under. And, that, and that'll, be, that'll be my final rest in place. I love the idea that I have this, this kind of companion between today and the last day. I find myself often talking to it because like it, it stays folded up in the corner of our bedroom, you know? And so a lot of yeah. times I'll walk by and I'll just kind of pat it. Sometimes I'll say something. It's, it's a great quilt when somebody's coming over to, let's say, do a video shoot or a photo shoot or something. I'll often pop that up just because it is the Zacchaeus quilt I've ever made in so many ways. And so as I put it up, I'm often telling it little stories like, hey, you got to look extra good today. So-and-so's coming over, that kind of thing. And so this burial quilt of mine is accruing this kind of patina and energy as it moves through life with me. And it gives me, when I think about that last day, there are so many unknowns, mm -hmm. right? But there is one known and it is soft and it is colorful and it feels like home. Yeah. And all of that feels real good to me. Yeah. And if you are listening right now to this podcast, I really encourage you to go to the website and click on the about tab so you can look at this photo because the thing that says it all is the expression on Zach's face. It's like this expression of, I'm exhausted right now, but I'm so satisfied and content. And when you 
add the story that this is your burial quilt to that whole expression on your face, it just fits. It just fits so well. So I definitely recommend that you go check that out. It is, it's, it's a glorious quilt. It does look very Zachful. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So I want to get into the topic of your podcast. So tell me all about it. What's it called? What do you chat about? How long you've been doing it? Give us the details on the podcast. Well, as of time of this recording, we have 41 episodes. I'm happy to report. And the thesis question that I'm exploring with all of these is, how does working with textiles make us more human? I love thinking about the inner work of textiles. You know, I told you that story about a little less intimate a moment ago and how working with textiles put me in touch with my troubled emotional state at the time. Right. And so th that's an example of the kinds of things I'm, I like to explore with, with quilters and with other people who work with textiles. So the podcast is called Seamside, and that is a reference to the back of a quilt top before it gets all quilted down. And I love that reference because it is the unseen part of a quilt. Once the quilt is finished, you will never see the seam side again. And it's a side that reveals the care that a maker takes or the haste that a maker was experiencing. You can see where shortcuts are made or if they were very thoughtful in lining things up. You may find if it was a paper piece, something, little pieces of newspaper stuck here or there. You may find tags or stains or discoloration, different things. I love the seam side of a piece of patchwork. And so it seemed like an appropriate name for the kinds of conversations we'd be having. And so it's about two years old now at this point. And I've, of course, talked to a lot of quilters. I have spoken with weavers. I have spoken with embroiderers. I have spoken with dyers. I have spoken with educators. I have spoken with social organizers, community organizers. And we're just circling this question of how working with cloth makes us more human. And hopefully one day we'll get an answer. But at the moment, it just feels like we're exploring this multifaceted jewel that each facet reveals something new about the entire jewel. Yeah. And we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Stick with me, folks. Hopefully we'll get somewhere. If not, we'll have fun exploring. Yeah. And of course, you can find Seamside on the Zach Foster website or on any podcast app that you love to use on your phone. I want to talk a little bit about well, there's a couple things. So I can't let this pass because you touched on it briefly. You talked about memory or burial quilts briefly. So just just tell me a little bit about what you've done with that in the past. So memory quilts are some that are very near and dear to me. And I think it's because I'm inherently attracted to memory and history of textiles. And I also think I'm uniquely well-situated because I do come from this long line of teachers and ministers to sit with people and to help them process and to work with people, to think through things, to think through feelings. And textiles can all help us do that, right? And so with memory quilts, someone will often reach out to me and say, hey, you know, can you make this quilt? One question we can never ask a client in the situation is, yes, maybe, but let me see the clothes first, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Like that would just be tacky given yeah. the situation and so what that means for me as an artist as just thinking from the creative perspective for a moment is i'm agreeing to a project not knowing anything about it other than the personal side of things right the connection i have with that person that's reached out to me yeah. and so then i'm in for a surprise when the box shows up in the mail and i open it up and i'm like okay 
time to make something beautiful. Who knows what it's going to be? But creatively, it's really pushed me over time. But what really sustains me is hearing and observing sometimes the impact that these memory quotes have on people. I'm thinking specifically of a time about three years ago, a woman in Brooklyn named Claire reached out to me. And Claire's husband, Teddy, was coming up on his 40th birthday. So she wanted to make him a surprise quilt. So she had reached out to all of his family and had them send me pieces of fabric and garments and things like that. And I was going to make this surprise quilt for Teddy. I make this quilt top. It's beautiful. I send a picture to Claire. And one thing y'all got to know about this whole situation is that, you know, as I'm working with clients, you learn different things about their lives. And one thing I learned about Claire at this time was that she had an ongoing cancer diagnosis. Oh. And so I sent her this picture of the, the final, the finished quilt top. And I didn't hear back right away. I did eventually, though, a few hours later. And it was a text that said, Zach, it's so beautiful. But I'm in the hospital right now. Can you send this to Teddy and let him know what we've been doing? So here I was. She asked me to reach out to someone I had never spoken with while she's in the hospital and he's out who who knows where. So I record this little video. It's like, hi, da, 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 da. I explained it. He loved it. He loved it. A few days later, Claire passes away. She never got to see the quilt top. She never got to see the quilt finished, which was surprisingly hard for me as someone who'd only met her once. And we had a, a client artist relationship, right? Like we weren't close friends. Yeah. But it was really hard to, I don't know how to say it. I mean, it was it was really hard to not have the quilt finished. And it was really hard to finish the quilt at the same time. Like, it's like, I just felt stuck between two equal and opposing forces. But I got the quilt done. And I reached out to Teddy, said, Teddy, you can pick up the quilt whenever you want. It's ready for you. Didn't hear back. About a year passes. Wow. And so I reached out to his mom because, you know, we'd been in contact too. You know, mom's got to get in on the quilt situation. Yeah. And so I said, hey, um, I've been trying to get a hold of Teddy and I ain't hearing from him. Can, can you reach out and see if this is a good time? So she does. Teddy comes over to my apartment building one night. It's dark. It's raining because, of course, it's dark and raining when you're going to pick up yeah. your former wife's quilt, you know. And we stand there in the lobby of my apartment building. And we just hug and then we start crying. And then we tell, I, I, I take the quilt and I spread it out on the floor of the, the lobby and I'm showing him Claire chose this fabric for this reason, this fabric for this reason. All of these stories were coming out. And it was such a beautiful moment of connection made possible by textiles yeah. that has forever imprinted in my mind and in my heart why I do what I do. Because when Teddy left with that quilt under his arm, we were no longer strangers. I haven't seen him ever again, never talked to him again. But our lives will be forever intertwined because of this quilt that Claire had made for him. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Wow. What a beautiful story. Now, I want to talk about an example of a burial quilt. So is it your own that you've made or have you made others? Yeah, I've made a few. So I've, I've made one for myself that is currently unquilted. And I guess that's the hubris of youth, if we count 43 as youth, which I do. Um, I'm hoping I have plenty of time to finish it, God willing. 
I have made one that got picked up by the Henry Ford Museum, which I'm very excited about. And then I've made one for a client down in Nashville, Tennessee, who's going to be buried at my buddy's natural conservation land called Larkspur. And this person, Jennifer is her name, really wanted a memory, a burial quilt made out of her t-shirts. And her t-shirts were amazing brandy. They were like tie-dye and ice dye and acid wash and all these bright colors and they had printed images of wolves howling at moons and things like that like you could we can picture this quilt right yeah i would never in a hundred million years <laughs> gone to the store picked up a dozen of these t-shirts and made a quilt out of them but again it's not my choice is it and so i i made this quilt for her for jennifer and it is it's really sweet. What is the sweetest thing about it is she sends me pictures from time to time of her and her granddaughter wrapped up in it for like movie night. Oh. And she's able to talk about her mortality with her young granddaughter. Her granddaughter looks maybe five or six years old. She's able to share about how one day grandma is not going to be around anymore. And she can do that in a soft and safe context of this quilt. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most powerful things that burial quilts have to offer is this ability to open up conversation about mortality in a way that doesn't feel threatening or doesn't feel scary or doesn't call for any major decisions to be made. Yeah. So great. I love that. I love this whole conversation. Okay. I don't want to let that slip by either. You mentioned that one of your burial quilts was picked up by a museum. What does that even mean? So... Yeah, the Henry Ford Museum outside of Detroit reached out to me and they acquired two of my quilts. So two of them are now part of the permanent collection at the museum. It's so cool. It's so cool. And, and it's so funny because it's kind of a study in opposites in a lot of ways. One of them is this king-sized burial quilt and the other one is this tiny hand-sized tiny quilt. And so, but the, the, but they're both thematically related in a really beautiful way. So I'd, I'd love to share both of them with you if I can. Yeah. The burial quilt is an exploration of this kind of like kaleidoscopic improv thing I was trying. So what I did was the composition has four quadrants. The first quadrant was truly improv. I just slapped some strips together. Then what I wanted to do was to recreate that quadrant, but mirror image. And then I did that two more times, each time flipping, right? So it feels random, but it also feels kaleidoscopic. And it was really tricky from a technical standpoint because lines had to meet along the four the, the two axes right the x-axis and the y-axis the the stitch lines the seam lines had to line up there but inside of the actual quadrant really anything could happen right? i didn't have to be too precise on the inside and it's these beautiful yellow and green florals and it reminds me of the woods behind my childhood home where i'd spend most of my time as a kid just running around the woods, sometimes laying down on the leafy floor and looking up through the trees and seeing the sun come through the tree leaves. Like it felt like that to me. And so that seemed like a very appropriate connection for a burial quilt. Now, the tiny one they got was actually an all black quilt, ironically enough. But I had met an artist in Seattle named Patty Shaw. And Patty, not a textile artist, but we work with the same themes had collected for over a decade. She'd go to her local Catholic church and pick up, I think you call them candle tabs. You know, so think of the bottom of a votive candle. It has that little square piece of aluminum, right, that holds yeah. the wick. So when people would go to the church and light a candle for somebody, 
The candle would burn down, and the only thing left of those prayers, as Patty would say, are those little candle tabs, those little metal squares. And so she would go and collect those metal squares. She's like, I am the steward for the remnants of somebody's prayers. And I just, I'm like, Patty, you and me are friends for life now. So <laughs> she gifted me a whole bag of those because she had more and she knew what to do with. And I sewed those down on top of this little tiny black quilt. And so thematically thinking about mortality and our interconnectedness, they go really well together, even if aesthetically they look a little bit yeah. disparate. Yeah, that's so great. Okay, the next topic I want to broach with you is so good. I love this one. It's words on quilts. Now, I want to start with a project that you did with Roderick Kirikoff that I saw for the first time when I was at Festival of Quilts in Birmingham. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so this was a project. I love words on quilts. I love text on quilts. And I think when we look at the etymology of text and textiles, there is an inherent human connection between those two things, those two concepts. And Linguists are not sure what it is because it goes back to Proto-Indo-European language roots, you know, thousands of years ago. But we think it has something to do with the idea that just like with text, if you're writing a book, you are stringing one sentence together with another with another. You're threading those strings, those thoughts together to make a compelling narrative. When you weave a textile, you're doing the same thing, right? So it's this act of bringing these tiny isolated bits together in a form that makes some greater sense or logic. And so I love the inherent connection between text and textiles. And the piece with Roderick started as, you know, Roderick's a quilt collector and he had a quilt top that he was looking to rehome. And so he generously sent it to me and it was this beautiful, I don't know the name of the pattern, but um, let's just call it like a bunch of sunbursts (laughs) across the quilt top right? Beautiful vintage, mid-century fabrics. And it it was just lovely. And I didn't know what to do with it right away, but I was having a conversation in the kitchen with my partner one night. This was in Turbulent 2019, 2018, somewhere in there. And my partner just looks at me about whatever news of the day we've been talking about and just says, well, you see, this is why America can't have nice things. (laughs) So good. And I've gone back in my journals. I've gone back in my records to see if I can figure out what that initial spark of a news story was no idea but it also doesn't matter right we could be talking maybe we were talking about social inequality maybe we were talking about sexism maybe we were talking about unequal distribution of wealth maybe we were talking about climate change who knows what but this is why america and i'm going to use america as a placeholder for the western world can't have nice things because we we can't agree on what our priorities are right are our priorities wealth or are our priorities one another And there's ways where those can be mutually inclusive, but the way we're doing it is often exclusive, unfortunately. And so I hand cut those letters that my partner said out of this coarse black linen, hand stitched them down. And there you have it. It's one of my most popular quilts. People really resonate with it. I'm glad to see that it's making trips around the world. So Zach, you have a good to be together quilt. And then just scrolling through the beautiful gallery on your website, there's another one that it's sort of a creamy quilt and it has white words on it. And the thing that stands out the most is the word mother. So I want to chat about that quilt as well. Yeah. So good to be together was a commission from the John C. Campbell Folk School in Western North Carolina. It's a century old art and craft school in the mountains. 
And it's an institution. It's beautiful. Every year they have a fall festival that draws tens of thousands of people from the area. And they have a festival quilt each year. And so I was asked to make the one for 2022. And it was an honor because it was the first time in three years they were having a fall festival because the pandemic put a pause on it for the first time in their existence. And so when I when I received the commission, I thought, what is it that I want people to walk away with after seeing this quilt? And that is literally that it is good to be together. And whatever form and fashion, we're, you know, we got real used to being together in digital form during the pandemic. And that's great. I'm so thankful that we had it. And there's just something so uniquely special about being in physical proximity with one another that I wanted to capture that in words and text on the front of this quilt. And so I did a couple of different things that really reinforced that point. The quilt is a hand-tied quilt. It is stitched Mm -hmm. down or it is tied down with over 3,000 little knots. And I was thinking about, as I carted that quilt all over the country, it took months to finish. I was thinking about during the pandemic, one of the things I found that I missed the most in the early days were all of those little offhand encounters that you have with neighbors or the person at the checkout at the grocery store, the person at the gas station, right? All those little loose ties, I think are what sociologists call them, that Mm -hmm. really add up to the to to give you an emotional texture to your day. I miss those. And so for me, those 3,000 knots represent all of those little one-off conversations that we have throughout our days. And then on the back, I did something I'd never done before, which is I had taken a bed sheet, a white bed sheet. I laid it out on top of the quilt to start with, and I traced around the letters, good to be together. So it is a life-size, real-size line drawing on a bed sheet of the quilt. I put that drawing on a big table in the entryway of the festival barn for people to sign as they came into the uh-huh. to the festival. And so what I found so satisfying about that part of this project was that you had to be physically present to document your name on this physical object. And now we have this document of attendance for as long as this quilt lives it's it's buttoned up on the back of the quilt so the two stay together so you can see my red side on the front and the white side with everybody's signature and the thing is dense with tens of thousands of signatures it is amazing to see in person so that was one and i really that that's a truly special quilt another one stems from a quilt that my mother gave me for Christmas. It is a Civil War era quilt. I sent it to, or I sent pictures of it to Roderick Kierkoff and my friend Coulter Fussell, who are both pretty good at dating these things. And we came up with probably the third quarter of the 18th century would be our guess. And so it was in decent shape. It had some patches here and there. And so as I was mending those patches, I found myself thinking about what would my great grandmothers think of me or somebody like me sewing on their quilt. Would it have been a warm response or would it have been a side eye response to have this queer fellow sewing on their quilts? I don't know. But I found myself thinking about what our great grandmothers would have thought. And so as a way of kind of turnkeying it out to the community, I came up with this collective visualization experience, which is I asked people, I invited people to reflect on what they felt their great grandmothers would advise us 
when thinking about the text that you saw in this quilt, which is great grandmothers, how do we get there from here? And again, this quilt was born in the turbulent days of 2016, 2017. And I wanted to tap into a collective knowledge about how we can move through this difficult time together. We know how to do it in our heart of hearts. We know how to do it in our best selves. We just don't always do that on an actual daily basis. And so it was really beautiful to see the kinds of things that people were sharing as far as what they felt like their great-grandmothers would have said, that they're time-honored ideas, right? That we know, we know. But the quilt brought them out and gave us a chance to verbalize them. Yeah. And scrolling through your gorgeous gallery, we can't talk about your great-grandmother's quilt without talking about mom's retirement quilt. (laughs) Tell me about that one. That was a fun project. Um, So my mom was retiring after 38 years of teaching. Just take that in for a second. She taught for a long time. And behind her back, one of her coworkers reached out to me and said, we want to make a retirement quilt for your mom. Would you do that for us? I said, amen, of course. And so we came up with this plan. We concocted this scheme where I cut a bunch of red fabric into kind of wedge shapes and sent them to Mary is her name, my mom's coworker. Mary went around to all the teachers and staff of the school and got each person to write a little message in permanent ink on those red squares, mailed them back to me. And then I put them in this kind of radiant spiral that you see in this quilt of red and white. And it's my mom's favorite thing. There, there came a point where a museum in Mexico asked if they could exhibit it. And I said, sure, but let me see if I can convince my mom to let go of it long enough. <laughs> Gratefully, she did. And it came back to her safe and sound. But <laughs> there was a moment where I'm like, I'm not sure this is going to happen. Oh, it's so beautiful. Okay. And I, there, you know, I, I really encourage you, if you're listening right now to this podcast, good go to Zach Foster's website and scroll through his gallery because it is just a treasure trove. And also there's, you know what, I bet you if people are scrolling through your gallery and they're thinking afterwards, listening to this podcast, they would be like, Brandy, how could you not touch on the spoon quilt? So let's talk about that one. Yeah, that's another wild one. So this would be about 2015, 2016. And I was walking around Mexico because Mexico for me is a home away from home. I I was a Spanish teacher for all those years. I don't know if I said what I taught, but I taught Spanish. And I learned Spanish in Mexico. So it just, it feels like a very familiar place to me. And I'm always grateful to be a visitor there. And I'm walking around Guanajuato, if anybody knows Guanajuato, which is a beautiful mountain town. And I was noticing all these little colorful plastic spoons on the ground as I walked around. I said, this is weird. The little ice cream spoons, you know, the things that ice cream shops give you to eat your ice cream. People would eat them and drop them. Now, I don't want people walking away from this conversation thinking Mexicans litter more than Americans because we are just as bad as I have seen in New York. But I started collecting these little plastic spoons. And the more I gathered, the more irritated I got at this system that incentivizes making durable plastic goods look like brightly colored toys that we only use for a few minutes to eat our ice cream, but then will remain on the planet for centuries to come. Yeah. I got really irritated. And so this is where I'm thankful that textiles give us a framework for understanding the world. I think of, I've had two conversations with artists on the same side that come to mind in this moment. One is Victoria Gertenbach out of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, who deeply connects 
with the old hollow barns of the Amish countryside. And that helps her understand loneliness and community. And I think about Beverly Smith, who's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina, who is really diving in deep to the history of the materials that she's working with as she explores her own family history. And she focuses a lot on emancipation and what happened when the enslaved people were suddenly freed and their families, and they were trying to reconnect with their families, all the things they were doing to try to reestablish those connecting threads, right? So here are two artists and thinking about the spoons quilt, like we move through the world and we have these giant questions and how do we make sense of it all? So I'm collecting these spoons and I'm getting irritated at the same time. You need to know that I'm also working on this other project that is just a little travel quilt, which means I'm finding bits of fabric along the way. Maybe people give them to me or I just find them wherever and I'm making them into a quilt. I do that every time I travel. So here I am, irritated Zach, Guanajuato, Mexico, 2016. And I just start attaching all of these little plastic spoons after washing them, of course, to this quilt. There are so many spoons on this quilt that you cannot see the original patchwork behind them. And there's a lesson in there somewhere, folks. There's a metaphor in there for us, right? That something's got to give. We are literally consuming our one and only home. And we are edging ourselves out. We are crowding ourselves out of our one and only home. And it is obscuring the beauty of life and many times. So when I think of the spoons quilt, that's what I'm thinking of. It is a very fun looking quilt. It is bright. It is colorful. It has beautiful acoustics. I would encourage people to listen to a little video where I have my friend <laughs> Isabel kind of like, we call it the, the spoon quilt shimmy. And she just kind of shakes it back and forth. And it's just this beautiful acoustics. But at the heart of it is a deep irritation with the way things are currently and a desire for them to be different. It completely obscures the past patchwork underneath that's awesome i love this quilt and you know what it really tells a story it doesn't look like uh it doesn't look like from a specific place in the world it looks like our place it looks like from wherever we are we can kind of resonate with it okay so we've touched on words on quilts we've touched on some of the cool things you've done the collaborations i want to talk about this online community that you've created called the nook so just tell us how we can take part in it what kind of things you're doing and what you're exploring there yeah i love the nook i think sometimes that i mean if i'm being really honest i think sometimes maybe i just start it just to like make a space for the people that I want to talk to, to come to, so we can all just hang out and talk about quilts, right? Yeah. And ask similar questions about textiles and explore textiles similarly. So maybe there's a small part of me that this was entirely self-serving. That is <laughs> that is highly possible. But it also goes way beyond that. And it has turned into a really beautiful community of over a thousand members from 20 some different countries around the world. Yeah. We, because of that, have events scheduled at all hours of the day, because um, we got to make sure that our quilters in Australia have something to do too. You know, that's important. I see you, Australia. And what's really nice is we've grown to a size now that we can do a couple different things. One, we have virtual sewing circles almost every day, which is something I could never have done on my own. Yeah. Right. When we think about collective power, this is a great example. Working alone, I could give you two sewing circles a month. That was my commitment. Working together, you can have one every day because other folks in the nook are stepping up to host sewing circles, right? And so some of these folks are from the UK or Australia, different places. So we can have them at these times all across the clock. Also, 
because the nook has gotten so big and so spread out now that we are noticing that there are concentrations of nookers, as we call ourselves, throughout the world, around certain cities and places around the world. And so we are setting up what we call pods, local pods, where people can get together in real life to sit and stitch or go to quilt shows or go to an exhibit or go to a creative reuse store or whatever it is, right? Watch a movie together. Who cares? Just Sometimes you just want the company of like-minded souls, you know? And so I'm really excited about pods this year. Those are really taking off and doing well. But we do a bunch of other stuff too. You know, we have visiting artists come in once a month to talk us through different approaches and techniques. So in October, we had somebody come talk to us about ancestral sewing, how to incorporate our biological or even chosen ancestors into our textile work. Fascinating. In November coming up, I'm teaming up with Amanda Nadig. We're talking about how to work in series, how to take one little tiny idea and twist it and twist it and twist it and twist it and keep making new pieces from it. And in December, we have someone come and talk to us about the Enneagram for creative people. How could, I love the Enneagram, right? If you're not familiar, it's this kind of personality typing system that focuses on the coping strategies that each of the nine types often uses to sidestep sticky issues in our lives, right? So when we identify the coping mechanism, we can also identify maybe maybe the Buddha would call it the noble path through the sticky thing as opposed to sidestepping it. And so I'm excited for December's conversation too, kind of reflecting at the end of 2023 and going into 2024. Are we the kind of creative person that we want to be? Are we living our biggest and fullest life? And this will be a really great chance to kind of think about, reflect and ruminate on those questions as well. Yeah. And one thing I love about it is, you know, the Nook is kind of a place where you can explore your creative path and you can surround yourself with a like-minded community, but it's not financially unattainable. It is reasonable. So so tell us about how to get involved if you want to opt in and become a part of the community. Accessibility is one of my key creative virtues, right? That I want what I do to be accessible in some form or fashion to anybody that wants to engage with it. And so I brought that same ethos to the virtual community, to the Nook. And so I've always kept it cheaper than Netflix. That's kind of my, that's that's my (laughs) pacing, if you will. Um, And I feel like that's a bargain because, you know, maybe we watch hours of TV shows and movies and stuff in a month, but then also think about the hours you could spend in sewing circles or doing these different creative challenges or the workshops that we have. So I keep it accessible. It's like two cups of coffee worth of dollars you know it's not that it not that expensive anybody can who wants to learn more can go to nook.sackfoster.com and learn more there's a free trial so you can look no one's trying to strong arm you here you can check it out see how it would support you in your creative path if you get the good vibe in those three days stick around if not peace out many blessings no harm no foul and one other thing i would add is that now that we're going into our third year together, certain trend lines are starting to emerge. It's like, who is the nook for? So like, there's one way to think about that creatively, right? In general, we often call ourselves feral quilters. Like we're, we're a little bit wild. We're a little unorthodox. We like to experiment, but there's also, there's room for all kinds of quilts on the nook. That's the creative side. But then on the more kind of like maybe practical side, what I see is that a lot of folks that join the nook tell me they're the only quilter they know right? They don't know where their community is. So they come to the nook and 
wow, you just got like a ready-made pre-packaged community for you. Yeah. A lot of times too, it's new parents who have real they have a lot of time commitments. And so they can they dip in and dip out as is convenient for their schedule. And we have a special room on the nook called health and the creative process. Because another thing that we found is that many of us deal with limiting in some ways health issues, whether they're physical health, mental health, emotional health, that makes leaving the house difficult. And so we've created a special space on the nook just for folks that want to talk about how their current health situation impacts their creative practice. And that's turned out to be one of the most popular rooms on the nook. They get together, they have their own sewing circles, they talk about what they talk about. And it's it's really beautiful to see all kinds of needs getting met, not just quilting needs, not just creative needs, but social needs, emotional needs, relational needs, all kinds of things. There's room for it all. Yeah. Sounds like a wonderful creative place to be. Okay. So I want to chat a little bit more about Southern White Amnesia. Let's just talk about working on a theme and how this project is going. Well, this project came into existence because I am the family historian. I was finding out things about our collective history as a family that I was the only person who knew these stories. And I couldn't sit on those stories. It was like a hot coal. Right. Like I had to do something with it. Yeah. These stories about slavery, these stories about removal of indigenous people, these kinds of stories about my ancestors were part of these trend lines in American history. And so I knew I had to do something with it. And so thankfully I had this container of quilting already set up and ready to go. I just didn't know exactly how, what shape it would take until November 2022. I was at the International Quilt Museum and I got a chance to meet. Dr. Carolyn Maslumi. I was speaking on Thursday night. She was speaking on Friday night to introduce the new show that she was showing of her collection of various quilters and walking around looking at those quilts. And then especially at dinner with her afterwards, because I had the great good fortune of sitting right beside her at the dinner table when we went out after. And we, it was just me and Carolyn the whole night. We're like, is there anybody else at this table? Nope. (laughs) So we were just talking. And what crystallized for me in seeing that collection of work was almost to a one. The the folks who she was collecting, and, and she collects primarily the work of American black quilters. And what I was seeing in their work is these references to major historical and social occurrences that were deeply personal, that were not mimetic. They were not meme-like. They were not slogans. These were very real, very lived personal experiences. And when you focus on a personal experience, can't nobody tell you nothing. You are 100% in your power when you're talking about your own life story. And so it was seeing that work. I'm like, oh, now I kind of have a way forward for what would become Southern white amnesia, right? So I've been interested a long time in equality, in leveling the, the the scales of justice a little bit. And I just didn't know how to go about it. And I, and I had some kind of starts and stops. But now what feels really good about how this collection is coming together is that I'm just focusing on my family, telling my family's story. They are carefully chosen stories because they all connect to major historical trends. Yeah. Right. So I'm telling you how my family gained wealth and then passed wealth down intergenerationally, which 
my family, that's not, of course, that's not the only family that happened for. That happened for a majority of white families in the South. And so I, it, it's going well. I'm, I'm telling my personal stories. I'm trying to avoid slogans and memes. And the stories that are coming out are rich and nuanced. I think of the very first quilt in the series is one that was based on my family member's reaction that I told you about a few months ago, which is, yeah. I think we would know. Yeah. And so I found this giant house dress that was a pale pink, a fitting color, thinking about whiteness. And it was kind of sheer. And so I sewed this pale pink house dress down on top of an old sunbonnet sue and overall Sam quilt. And I had never really thought about them as a symbol before. But in connection with what my family member had said, I was like, oh yeah, I think we would know, but why would we know? If you're if you're familiar with Sunbonnet Sue, it is a child in profile who's looking away from us. Um, she's got a bonnet so big, there's almost like blinders, right? We don't yeah. even see her face. So why would we know about our own family history if we're not even investigating it, asking the questions, doing the research, which thanks to online resources is easier now than it's been at any other point in human history. And so I like that juxtaposition of this pale pink house dress with reverse applique letters. I think we would know on top of some bonnet suit. Like that for me is the statement. Inside of that collection, there's also the infographic quilt that I was telling you about. There's one that I love. It's so beautiful. And it's another like start with material and material leads the way stories. I was at Penland, which is just north of Asheville, North Carolina. And I'd found this velour and silk scarf that came from an East Indian country, just judging based on like the mirror work and the beadwork that had been done on it. And I use that as the basis for telling this allegory of how whiteness came into the world. I'd had this dream a few months prior, right? Where my great-grandfather, a guy named Hiram Duguid, came to me in a dream and handed me this writhing poisonous snake. And I was like, oh, hell no, nah, granddad. So we're like, we're pushing it back and forth, you know? At the end of the dream, I'm left with the writhing poisonous snake and the understanding that it is the work of us, the living, to make change. Our ancestors cannot do it. They can maybe gently encourage and push, but they can't do the work that the living can do. And so the snake for me has been a powerful image of whiteness and inequality. And so this quilt that's made of the velour and silk scarf tells the allegory of how whiteness is perpetuated from generation to generation. And the very first line of this allegory is highly poetic. I'm pretty proud of myself, if I'm honest. <laughs> Something like, our children are born with a snake in the crib. This guardian serpent whispers silver-tongued seeds into the open ears of our children that bloom later in life. Whispers like, all this belongs to you. Whispers like, they could have all this too if they worked hard like you. And this allegory, of course, is directed to white folks thinking about how we've set ourselves apart as a special class and how we transmit those stories from day one of our existence on this plane and how it gets passed down and how it's a very dangerous thing, but it's a thing that we're also very intimately involved in. I mean, it's a snake in our crib, you know, so it's up to us to kind of untangle it. And one of the things that came together so beautifully in this quilt, and I hope that everybody gets a chance to see it in person one day, is that a friend of mine, Alicia Mann, a weaver from Knoxville, Tennessee, 
introduced me to the idea of bustrophedon, which is an old, ancient way of writing. So now, you know, we have this basic, like in the Western world, we start our lines each time on the left and we work from left to right. If we were in China, we'd start on the right and we work top to bottom, right? But we have these systems in place. Bustrophedon is another system in that the first line will start from the left and work to the right. But then the second line picks up on the right and works to the left in a mirror image. The letters are flipped. Oh. The third line goes back to what we'd consider normal. The fourth line flips again. And so what you have is this serpentine movement through text that actually can get pretty easy. Like once you've experienced reading Booster Fijian, like it's your eye can pick up on it. But I thought in a story about snakes, Booster Fijian was especially appropriate because you do have to slow down to take it in. And it moves and kind of lulls you to sleep, almost like I imagine like a cobra and a snake charmer, you know? Yeah, it works so well with the silver-tongued serpent. That's for sure. Okay, I want to know a little bit more about this project. So how many pieces are you in so far? How far do you think you'll go? What What are your dreams for this project? How do you want to show it to the world? Mm. So I'm, I don't know. You know, I think I've probably got six or seven finished pieces and three or four... TBD pieces, right? Yeah. And a long list of ideas for pieces. I see this being the work of the next many years of my life. I don't know exactly how, how long. We'll just see till the story gets told. And I would love for it to, I want to try to get these stories, these quilts in front of people like me, like my family, who are good folks doing good things, yeah. but they're not always pointing back in history and thinking about how history's had a certain foundation for the present, right? Yeah. And I think that like if these quilts were to hang in a gallery, that would be cool, but then it would be kind of like largely preaching to a choir, you know? And so what I would really like to do, to be honest with you, is to like get them in public libraries around the country, around the world. I hear like churches more and more have gallery spaces. I would love to get them in church galleries, shopping malls. I don't know, just alternative spaces for people who may not consider themselves artists or even art appreciators who could look at a quilt though and understand it because there is something about quilt. It's the familiar, it's, it's the mysterious knownness of a quilt, right? Yeah. It's a thing that we know, but it's still somehow unknown to us. And so it's engaging. And so I feel like just if I could get them in the, those kinds of spaces, the stories would land where I would like them to land. That's yeah. the hope. Yeah, that would be so effective. I remember hearing a story or seeing something online about a huge shopping mall who, if they ever had an unleased space temporarily, they would allow art to be in there temporarily. So hopefully you can find something like that. That would be really cool. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Okay. So now it's time for the lightning round, Robin. It's a series of rapid fire questions and it's super fun. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. Sitting okay. up straight. What is your favorite tool or notion? Okay, that's an easy one because it's my two hands. I couldn't okay. do anything without these hands. My <laughs> fingers are still working. No arthritis to date. I'm very thankful every day that I can sew without pain. Oh, sweet. Do you have any kind of personal reward system for getting things done? Yeah, I remember those chocolate stains on my quilts I was telling you about? <laughs> yeah. yeah, chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Mine's M&M's. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, what is a skill you'd still love to learn in quilting? I would think, this is a little more embroidery, I guess, but I love 
these pieces I've seen that are like open work or like drawn thread, I think it's called embroidery, mm-hmm. where you pull out threads from the fabric, creating these spaces in the weave. And then sometimes you tie the different loose threads together and do artful things with them. I've never done anything like open work embroidery, but that would be a cool thing to explore soon. Yeah, that does sound really cool. Um, have you had any weird, funny, or crazy quilting moments? Every day of my life, Brandy. But <laughs> but I'll tell you, one of my favorite stories is I was at my partner's mamaw's house down in East Tennessee. She's the first real quilter I ever knew. She grew up quilting with her mom and sisters, and she could pull a quilt down out of the closet and run her finger down some quilting seams, and she could tell you exactly which sister had quilted that particular part. You know, she she was amazing. One Thanksgiving, we're down visiting, and she goes to the closet, and she pulls out this unfinished quilt top, and it's the quilt top I made in college 10 years previous. So this is the second first quilt that I told you that we'd probably circle back around to. I had made this kind of checkerboard quilt in college, quilt top in college, using repurposed materials or old bedsheets from Goodwill, so true to form. And I got so put off by the end because my points weren't matching and I just assumed that was a prerequisite to be a quilter. And so I made it bed size, but then I never finished it because I was like, oh, it's not square. And I felt like it had to happen. And so I folded it up. I put it away. Didn't think anything about it for years and years and years and years and years. And then here we are in a whole nother state a decade later, Mama pulls this quilt top out of the closet. She's like, I don't know where this one came from. I'm like, I made that. How'd you get it? To this day, we have no idea how that quilt top I'd made wound up in Mamaw's closet. We can imagine, of course, how it happened, but <laughs> no clear answers. But it felt very eerie, very spooky, and also really, really wonderful. Yeah, that is, that's a cool story. I did promise her that I would finish it. And I was like, Mamaw, I think what I want to do is hand tie this one. She's mm-hmm. like, you don't hand tie it. You quilt this one really nice. And I'm like, mm. I said yes, but then I went back and hand tied it and now she's passed away. I love you, Mama. <laughs> well, she probably would have loved it anyway. I'm sure. Okay. Has there been a mentor who has really influenced you along your journey? Oh, several. I mean, I could count many friends as mentors. I could count many artists as mentors. I would think one of the most impactful ones would be Dr. Carolyn Maslumi that we just talked about. Yeah. Not only in her own work and the people that she's pulling together, but I'm thinking of this women of color quilting network that she has that is drawn, that has created this space, carved out this space for women and people of color to come together and quilt in community. And that's just, that's just, it's a beautiful thing. So thankful yeah. she's here on this planet. Yeah. I, I dream of interviewing her one day. I hope that I can make that connection. What are some of your favorite or unusual collections of things? Okay. So I like to take a lot of walks around my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And I started noticing little black rocks here and there scattered out my neighborhood. And I took a closer look. Turns out they're little bits of coal. And I became obsessed with collecting little bits of coal because it speaks to another time in our history where our homes were coal heated. It speaks to that artistic part of me that loves transformation, right? Coal was once a plant or an animal that has been turned into something radically different through time and pressure. And so I just, I love so much about coal. So I started picking up those little chunks of coal. I washed them off and I keep them in my coal bowl in my living room. That's kind of cool. That reminds me of something that you did that you ended up not finishing and you went around and you collected clothing. Tell me the story about that. 
There are so many takeaways from that project. Okay, so here it is. September 2019, if I remember correctly, I committed to myself to pick up every piece of discarded textile that crossed my path for that month, right? So I wasn't going out of my way. I wasn't rummaging through dumpsters or anything like that. It's just, it's going to be on the sidewalk, it'll be on somebody's stoop, whatever. I ended up at the end of that month collecting so many pieces of discarded fabric that it became creatively stifling. Like I could not see my way clear through all the material I collected. I collected enough to make three king-size quilts. Wow. And so I sat with it, I played with it, I played with it, I played with it. I called Heidi and I'm like, Heidi, I'm so stuck. Like, I don't know what to do. And she says, Zach, there is no shame in passing on a project. If you have really given it your best, it's just not come together. Take the lesson, recycle the textiles and move on to the next thing. And that was, that was a permission I needed to kind of shake myself free of it. The takeaway from that is, one, we are swimming in textile abundance. There, I don't feel any need to go buy new fabric. I just yeah. keep my eyes open as I move through the world. Two, it's okay to quit. Yeah. It's okay to quit. You don't got to finish everything. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to end the lightning round, Robin, there, because that's such a great message. And, you know, I just, yeah, it's so valuable. Sometimes you have, like, quilters are known for having dozens of unfinished UFOs, unfinished objects or projects or quilts. And you know what? Sometimes it's so gratifying to just hand that over to someone who's excited about making it into a charity quilt or something like that. So you don't have to hang on to everything and you don't have to do everything you promised yourself. You just have to promise yourself that you're going to take care of yourself, right? And sometimes- Take care of yourself and take care of the materials. Yeah. If you're not going to use them, pass them along responsibly. Absolutely. Okay. So thank you for braving the lightning round, Robin. That was fun. So I've mentioned your website at zachfoster.com and where we can find everything that you offer, but where's the best place for quilters and you know, anyone listening to connect with you on social media. I mean, Instagram, that's my baby. I love hanging out there. So I'm at ZachFoster.quilts. Just remember Zach is Z-A-K. I don't know why. Ask my mama, but it's Z-A-K-Foster.quilts. Okay, so you can message on Instagram or follow along and see what he's up to. Now, as we wrap up, Zach, what do you want quilters to take away most from our conversation today? I find it deeply curious that what was once the epitome, the paragon of communal craft, that is quilting and the quilting bee, is now in modern times largely a solo sport. We are working in our own little studios, in our own little homes, and then we share pictures on online. You know, And all that's beautiful and things change and that's fine. But I would like to move us away from thinking as quilting as a solo sport into how can we reconnect with one another? Because without a doubt, we are better together than we are apart. We can do more together than we can as individuals. And so whatever that means, whether it's joining a community or joining a guild or even making loose connections on social media, it's all good. It all counts and all adds up. So quilting, let's make it communal again, you know? Oh, that's so great. Find your nook, right? Yeah, find your nook. There you go. You said it. You said it. Find your nook. (laughs) Well, Zach, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. My pleasure, Brandy. Thank you so much for a chance to tell some of my favorite stories. And thank you for your thoughtful questions. Oh, this was so fun. So that was my show with Zach Foster. 
I loved talking about and exploring his work in a series. One thing that delighted me was the way he connects with his community in the nook and how he shares his inspiration to create sustainably. He's not imposing, but rather stirring up good conversations. So one thing he does that I really like is that he takes great inspiration from the world around him, especially where he lives in New York. And it's telling a story of his life one quilt at a time. I really encourage you to follow Zach on Instagram and take part in the conversations. Join the Nook if you think that that will serve you well. And I can't wait to see where his story takes him in the future. I loved sharing his story with you today. Join me for a quilter's dream trip to Japan in May 2024. Delight in the breathtaking beauty of traditional Japanese towns, shop for stunning fabrics, and learn traditional Japanese techniques like sashiko. Be part of our textile tour to Japan and experience a world of art, craft, and culture like never before. Don't miss this wonderful opportunity. Book your spot today by calling Judy at Opulent Quilt Journeys, 1-877-235-3767. Again, don't forget to check out our sponsors. There's so many wonderful things they have to offer. Supporting our advertisers supports this free podcast. And did you have a little bit of FOMO or fear of missing out while I was at the International Quilt Festival in Houston? Well, I did my best to bring you as many pictures as possible. So be sure to check out the Quilter on Fire social media. There are reels and stories and all kinds of wonderful things to look at. And also subscribe to the Quilter on Fire YouTube channel because first up, I'm going to have an entire series of interviews with the creators of the special exhibits, which is so fascinating and wonderful. And also I'll be talking to some of the vendors and all kinds of other wonderful people that I bumped into at the show. So that's Quilter on Fire on YouTube. Be sure to go and check it out and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Quilter on Fire podcast. Until next time, dream big and have fun in the studio with the Quilter on Fire.